Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Welcome to episode 285 of Forgotten Classics. I'm Julie, and we're going to be listening to The White Mall by Frank L. Packard, an exciting tale of the seamy underbelly of New York City and all the gangs and one brave girl who stands up to them. But first, let's have the podcast highlight. This is one for anybody who loves movies and really loves in-depth history about Hollywood. The podcast is called The Secret History of Hollywood, A Modern Guide to the Golden Age of Cinema, and it has a really interesting path (laughs) that the podcaster took to get there. For one thing, the podcaster is a British sous chef, a family man, and somebody who absolutely loves the early movies. He began podcasting because he was writing reviews of some of his favorite movies way back when, when Google was the best way to find them. And eventually he thought, well, (laughs) you know, why why don't I just speak these? That would surely be easier than writing them. As we all know, that's not necessarily the case. But that's where Attaboy Clarence came from. Now, that's a podcast that is not as much to my taste, but you might like it. It's maybe an hour long or so and what's featured there are samples of movies samples of classic radio shows so that's something that a lot of people would like that's definitely more manageable than the secret history of Hollywood so as the podcaster was working on these shows he would do specials that delved a little deeper into the Hollywood history He'd feature episodes about things like horror movies and the history of how Hollywood started focusing on them, the stars of those movies, the studios that made them great, or the sex code in Hollywood, or, as is happening now, Alfred Hitchcock. And the thing is, he's such an enthusiast, he's so thorough, and He includes so much great information and a lot of clips from movies to illustrate his point that these specials can be something like seven hours long sometimes. This is daunting. I myself find a seven-hour podcast too long, but you know what? I just let it sit on my iPod. I listen to an hour's worth, go on to something else, come back to it later, because there is nothing like these. This guy, as I said, very personable, so intelligent, presents everything so well that I'm really remembering a lot of this, and I bored everybody to death with a bunch of horror knowledge the other day for that very reason. So if you like Hollywood history, old movies, or as we would say, the golden age of cinema, this is your podcast. You will not be disappointed. If you like old-time radio, try Attaboy Clarence. Not only, as I said, is the time more manageable, but he's playing episodes from these shows. Also, if you like The Secret History of Hollywood and Attaboy Clarence, they have been nominated for the UK Podcasters 2015 Awards. So by going to the site, you can click through and vote for them. It's a big honor and a lot of fun. All right, now... Back to the White Mall. We had some bombs dropped on us last time, right? The main one being that Dangler is Gypsy Nan's husband. Oh, holy moly, what is the White Mall going to do? And I have to say, I especially loved the whole sequence with the adventurer and the White Mall working together to defeat Dangler and escape. Somehow that just really stands out for me. I wonder if the author is beginning to hit a new level of, instead of just running back and forth to these different mysteries, now we're going to get a little bit more character development. That would be nice, right? Though the adventures are always wonderful. Before we dive in, I thought I would read some feedback from Ken Harmeyer, 
our friend in Hawaii, who used to be a truck driver and now, with his eclectic adventurous spirit, manages bees. If you have a swarm of bees in your attic and you need them moved, and you live in Hawaii, he's the one to call. Anyway, I'll just read his email to you. I'm enjoying the story. I find it fun to think about how women were thought of in that time. At one point, she is trying to outrun the cop. She says she can't because she's a woman, and a woman can't outrun a man. My first thought was, why not? Even when I was in the Marines, there were plenty of women who could outrun me. Then I remembered when this book was written, women were the weaker sex. He would get slapped upside the head now if he wrote this stuff. <laughs> then the author has her vacillating between killing the bad guys and being too weak to do it. Nowadays, she would grab a machine gun and cut everyone down. It is just fun to see thoughts about how people have changed. Thank you, Ken, and I agree. I have to say, one of the things I like about the White Mall is some of the things she worries about are the things I would worry about, too, if I were in her situation. I'm not sure if that makes her realistic or if it makes me old-fashioned or what. But anyway, I think that's kind of why I like the times when she's thinking, how am I going to get this done? This is simply impossible. And then she just has to barge forward and try her best. Though I am not a crack shot like she is, so I can't shoot a gun out of anyone's hand. That's enough of our thinking and talking. Let's find out what the White Mall is thinking and doing. Dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The White Mall by Frank L. Packard Chapter 11 Some of the Lesser Breed Dangler's Wife It had been a night of horror, a night without sleep, a night after the guttering candle had gone out, when the blackness of the garret possessed added terrors created by imagination which ran riot and which she could not control. She could have fled from it, screaming in panic-stricken hysteria, but there had been no other place as safe as that was. Safe. The word seemed to reach the uttermost depths of irony. Safe. Well, it was true, wasn't it? She had not wanted to return there. Her soul itself had revolted against it. She had dared to do nothing else. And all through the night, huddled on the edge of the cot bed, her fingers clinging tenaciously to her revolver, as though afraid for even an instant to relinquish it from her grasp. Listening, listening, always listening for a footstep that might come up from the dark hall below, the footstep that would climax all the terrors that had surged upon her. Her mind had kept on reiterating, always reiterating those words of the adventurer, Gypsy Nan is Dangler's wife. And they were still with her, those words. Daylight had come again, and passed again, and it was evening once more, but those words remained, insensible to change, immutable in their foreboding. And Rhoda Gray, as Gypsy Nan, shuddered now as she shuffled along a shabby street deep in the heart of the east side. She was Dangler's wife, by proxy. At dawn that morning the Gray had come creeping into the miserable attic through the small and dirty window-panes. She had fallen on her knees, and thanked God she had been spared that footstep. It was strange. She had poured out her soul in passionate thankfulness then that Dangler had not come, and now she was deliberately on her way to seek Dangler himself. But the daylight had done more than dispense the actual, physical darkness of the past night. It had brought, if not a measure of relief, at least a sense of guidance, and a final decision perilous though it was, which she meant now to put into execution. There was no other way, unless she was willing to admit defeat, to give up everything, her own good name, her father's name, to run far from it all, and live henceforth in hiding in some obscure place far away, branded in the life she would have left behind as a despicable criminal and a thief. And she could not, would not do this while her intuition, at least, inspired her with faith to believe that there was still a chance of clearing herself. It was a throw of the dice, perhaps, but there was no other way. Dangler and those with him were at the bottom of the crimes for which she was held guilty. 
she could not go on as she had been doing, merely in the hope of stumbling upon some clue that would serve to exonerate her. There was not enough time for that. Dangler's trap set for herself and the adventurer last night in old Nicky Viner's room proved that. And the fact that the woman who had originally masqueraded as Gypsy Nan, as she, Rhoda Gray, was masquerading now, was Dangler's wife, proved it a thousandfold more. She could no longer remain passive, arguing with herself that it took all her wits and all her efforts to maintain herself in the role of Gypsy Nan, which temporarily was all that stood between her and prison bars. To do so meant the certainty of disaster sooner or later, and if it meant that, the need for immediate action was an offensive sort of imperative. And so her mind was made up. Her only chance was to find her way into the full intimacy of the criminal band, of which Dangler was apparently the head, to search out its lair and its personnel, to reach to the heart of it, to know Dangler's private movements, and discover where he lived so that she might watch him. It surely was not such a hopeless task. True, she knew by name and sight scarcely more than three of this crime clique, but at least she had a starting point from which to work. There was Schlucker's junk shop, where she had turned the tables on Dangler and Skeeny on the night they had planned to make the sparrow their pawn. It was obvious, therefore, that Schlucker himself, the proprietor of the junk shop, was one of the organization. She was going to Schlucker's now. Rhoda Gray halted suddenly, and stared wonderingly a little way up the block ahead of her. As though by magic a crowd was collecting around the doorway of a poverty-stricken, tumbled-down frame house that made the corner of an alleyway, and where but an instant before the street's jostling humanity had been immersed in its wrangling with push-cart men who lined the curb, the carts were now deserted by everyone save their owners, whose caution exceeded their curiosity, and the crowd grew momentarily larger in front of the house. She drew Gypsy Nan's black, greasy shawl a little more closely around her shoulders, and moved forward again and now, on the outskirts of the crowd, she could see quite plainly. There were two or three steps that led up to the doorway, and a man and a woman were standing there. The woman was wretchedly dressed, but with most strange incongruity she held in her hand, obviously subconsciously, obviously quite oblivious to it, a huge basket full to overflowing, with, as nearly as Rhoda Gray could judge, all sorts of purchases, as though out of the midst of abject poverty a golden shower had suddenly descended upon her. And she was gray, and well beyond middle age, and crying bitterly, and her free hand, whether to support herself or with the instinctive idea of supporting her companion, was clutched tightly around the man's shoulders, and the man rocked unsteadily on his feet. He was tall and angular and older than the woman, and cadaverous of feature, and miserably thin of shoulder, and blood trickled over his forehead and down one ashen, hollow cheek, and above the excited exclamations of the crowd Rhoda Gray heard him cough. Rhoda Gray glanced around her. Where scarcely a second before she had been on the outer fringes of the crowd, she now appeared to be at the very center of it. Women were pushing up behind her, women who wore shawls as she did, only the shawls were mostly of gaudy colors, and men pushed up behind her, mostly men of swarthy countenance, who wore circlets of gold in their ears, and, brushing her skirts, seeking vantage points, ragged, ill-clad children wriggled and wormed their way deeper into the press. It was a crowd composed entirely of the foreign element which inhabited this quarter and the crowd clattered and gesticulated with ever-increasing violence. She did not understand, and she could not see so well now. That pitiful tableau in the doorway was being shut off from her by a man, directly in front of her, who had hoisted a half-naked tot of three or four to a reserved seat upon his head. And then a young man, one whom, from her years in the Badlands as the White Mall, she recognized as a hanger-on at a gambling hell in Chatham Square district, came toward her, ploughing his way, contemptuous of obstructions, out of the crowd. Rhoda Gray, as Gypsy Nan, hailed him out of the corner of her mouth. "'Say, what's de row?' she demanded. The young man grinned. "'Somebody pinched a million from de old guy.' He shifted his cigarette with a deft movement of his tongue from one side of his mouth to the other, and grinned again. Can you beat it? According to him, he had enough coin to annex the whole of New York. Damal's his wife. 
He went out to Helen gone somewhere for a few years hunting gold while the old girl starved. Denny comes back and blows in today with his pockets full, and the old girl grabs a handful and goes out to buy all the grub in sight, cause she ain't had none for so long. And when she comes back, she finds the old geezer gagged, tied to a chair, and some guys hit him a crack on the bean and flown to coop with the mazuma. But you had better get out of here before you gets run over. This ain't no place for an old skirt like you's. The bulls'll be down here in the hop of a minute, and when this mob starts sprinkling the street with their fleet and footsteps, you's are likely to get hurt. See? The young man started to force his way through the crowd again. You's had better cut loose, mother, he warned over his shoulder. It was good advice. Rhoda Gray took it. She had scarcely reached the next block when the crowd behind her was being scattered, pell-mell and without ceremony, in all directions by the police, as the young man had predicted. She went on. There was nothing that she could do. The man's face and the woman's face haunted her. They had seemed stamped with abject misery and despair. But there was nothing that she could do. It was one of those sore and grievous cross-sections out of the lives of the swarming thousands down here in this quarter, which she knew so intimately and so well. And there were so many, many of those cross-sections. Once in a small, pitifully meager and restricted way, she had been able to help some of these hurt lives, but now... Her lips tightened a little. She was going to Schlucker's junk shop. Her forehead gathered in little furrows as she walked along. She had weighed the pros and cons of this visit a hundred times already during the day, but even so, instinctively, to reassure herself lest some apparently minor, but nevertheless fatal, vital point might have been overlooked, her mind reverted to it again. From Schlucker's viewpoint, whether Gypsy Nan was in the habit of mingling with, or visiting the other members of the gang or not, a matter upon which she could not even hazard a guess, her visit tonight must appear entirely logical. There was last night, and a natural corollary, her equally natural anxiety of her supposed husband's account, providing, of course, that Schlucker was aware that Gypsy Nan was Dangler's wife. But even if Schlucker didn't know that, he at least knew that Gypsy Nan was one of the gang, and, as such, he must equally accept it as natural that she should be anxious and disturbed over what had happened. She would be on safe ground either way. She would pretend to know only what had appeared in the papers— in other words, that the police, attracted to the spot by the sound of revolver shots, had found Dangler handcuffed to the fire escape of a well-known thieves' resort in an all-too-well-known and questionable locality. A smile came spontaneously. It was quite true. That was where the adventurer had left Dangler, handcuffed to the fire escape. The smile vanished. The humor of the situation not long lived. It ended there. Dangler was as cunning as the proverbial fox, and Dangler, at the moment, in desperate need of explaining his predicament in some plausible way to the police, had, as the expression went, run true to form. Dangler's story, as reported by the papers, even rose above his high-water mark of vicious cunning, because it played upon a chord that appealed instantly to the police. And it rang true, not only because what the police found out about him made it likely, but also because it contained a modicum of truth in itself. And furthermore, Dangler had scored on still another count, in that his story must stimulate the police into renewed activities as his unsuspecting allies in the one thing, the one aim and object that, at the moment, must obsess him above all others. The discovery of herself, the White Mall. It was ingeniously simple, Dangler's smooth and oily lie. He had been walking along the street, he had stated, when he saw a woman, as she passed under a street lamp, who he thought resembled the white mall. To make sure, he followed her, at a safe distance, as he believed. She entered the tenement. He hesitated. He knew the reputation of the place which bore out his first impression that the woman was the one that he thought she was but he did not want to make a fool of himself by calling in the police until he was positive of her identity. So he finally followed her inside, and heard her go upstairs, and crept up after her in the dark. And then, suddenly, he was set upon and hustled into a room. It was the White Mall, all right, and the shots came from her companion, a man whom he described minutely, the description being that of the adventurer, of course. 
they seemed to think that he, Dangler, was a plain-clothed man, and tried to sicken him of his job by frightening him. And then they forced him through the window, and down the fire-escape, and fastened him there with handcuffs to mock the police, and the White Mall's companion had deliberately fired some more shots, to make sure of bringing the police to the scene, and then the two of them had run for it. Rhoda Gray's eyes darkened angrily. The newspaper said that Dangler had been temporarily held by the police, though his story was believed to be true. For certainly the man would make no mistake as to the identity of the White Mall, since his life, what the police could find out about it, coincided with his statements, and he would naturally have seen her many times in the Badlands, when she was working under cover of her despicable role of sweet and innocent charity. Dangler made no pretensions to self-righteousness. He was too cute for that. He admitted that he had no specific occupation, that he hung around the gambling halls a good deal, that he followed the horses, that, frankly, he lived by his wits. He would probably give some framed-up address to the police, but if so, the papers had not stated where it was. Rhoda Gray's face, under the grime of Gypsy Nan's disguise, grew troubled and perplexed. Neither had the papers, even the evening papers, stated whether Dangler had as yet been released. They had devoted the rest of the space to the vilification of the White Mall. They had demanded in no uncertain tones a more conclusive effort on the part of the authorities to bring her, and with her now the man in the case, as they called the adventurer, to justice, and— The thought of the adventurer caused her mind to swerve sharply off at a tangent. Where he had piqued and aroused her curiosity before, he now, since last night, seemed more complex a character than ever. It was strange, most strange, the way their lives, his and hers, had become interwoven. She had owed him much, but last night she had repaid him and squared accounts. She had told him so. She owed him nothing more. If a sense of gratitude had once caused her to look upon him with, with, she bit her lips. What was the use of that? Had it become so much a part of her life, so much a habit, this throwing of dust in the eyes of others, this constant passing herself off for someone else, this constant deception, warranted though it might be, that she must now seek to deceive herself? Why not frankly admit to her own soul, already in the secret, that she cared in spite of herself? For a thief? Why not admit a great hurt had come, one that no one but herself would ever know, a hurt that would last for always, because it was a wound that could never be healed? A thief. She loved a thief. She fought a bitter, stubborn battle with her common sense to convince herself that he was not a thief. She had snatched hungrily at the incident that centered around those handcuffs, so opportunely produced from the adventurer's pocket. She tried to argue that those handcuffs not only suggested, but proved that he was a police officer in disguise, working on some case in which Dangler and the gang had been mixed up and as she tried to argue in this wise, she tried to shut her eyes to the fact that the same pocket out of which the handcuffs came was at exactly the same moment the repository of as many stolen banknotes as it would hold. She had tried to argue that the fact that he was so insistently at work to defeat Dangler's plans was in his favor, but that argument, like all others, came quickly and miserably to grief. Where the leak was, as Dangler called it, that supplied the adventurer with foreknowledge of the gang's movements, she had no idea, save that perhaps the adventurer and some traitor in the gang were in collusion for their own ends, and that certainly did not lift the adventurer to any higher plane, or wash from him the stigma of a thief. She clenched her hands. It was all an attempt at an argument, without the basis of a single logical premise. It was silly and childish. Why hadn't the man been an ordinary, plain, common thief, and criminal, and looked like one? She would never have been attracted to him, then, even through gratitude. Why should he have all the grace and earmarks of breeding? Why should he have all the appearances of a gentleman? It seemed a needlessly cruel and additional blow that fate had dealt her, when already she was living through days and nights of fear, of horror, of trepidation, so great that at times it seemed she would literally lose her reason. If he had not looked, yes, and at times acted, so much like a thoroughbred gentleman, there would never have come to her this hurt, this gulf between them that could not now be spanned, 
and in a personal way she would never have cared because he was a thief. Her mental soliloquy ended abruptly. She had reached the narrow driveway that led, in between two blocks of down-at-the-heels tenements, to the courtyard at the rear that harbored Schlucker's junk shop. And now, unlike that other night when she had first paid a visit to the place, she made no effort at concealment as she entered the driveway. She walked quickly, and as she emerged into the courtyard itself she saw a light in the window of the junk shop. Rhoda Gray nodded her head. It was still quite early, still almost twilight, not more than eight o'clock. Back there, on the squalid doorstep where the old woman and the old man had stood, it had still been quite light. The long summer evening that had served at last to sear, somehow, those two faces upon her mind. It was singular that they should intrude themselves at this moment. She had been thinking, hadn't she, that at this hour she might naturally expect to find Schlucker still in his shop. That was why she had come so early, since she had not cared to come in full daylight. Well, if light meant anything, he was there. She felt her pulse quicken perceptibly as she crossed the courtyard and reached the shop. The door was open, and she stepped inside. It was a dingy place, filthy and littered, without the slightest attempt at order, with a heterogeneous collection of, it seemed, every article one could think of, from scraps of old iron and bundles of rags to cast-off furniture that was in an appalling state of dissolution. The light, that of a single and dim incandescent, came from the interior of what apparently was the office of the establishment, a small glassed-in partition affair at the far end of the shop. Her first impression had been that there was no one in the shop. But now, from the other side of the glass partition, she caught sight of a bald head, and became aware that a pair of black eyes were fixed steadily upon her, and that the occupant was beckoning her with his hand to come forward. She shuffled slowly, but without hesitation, up the shop. She intended to employ the vernacular that was part of the disguise of Gypsy Nan. If Schlucker, for that was certainly Schlucker there, gave the slightest indication that he took it amiss, her explanation would come glibly and logically enough. She had to be careful. How was she supposed to know whether there was anyone else about or not? "'Hello,' she said curtly, as she reached the doorway of the little office, and paused on the threshold. Shifty little black eyes met hers, as the bald head fringed with untrimmed gray hair was lifted from a battered desk and the wizened face of an old man was disclosed under the rays of the tin-shaded lamp. He grinned suddenly, showing discolored teeth, and instinctively she drew back a little. He was an uninviting and exceedingly disreputable old creature. "'You, eh, Nan?' he grunted. "'So you've come to see old Jake Schlucker, have you? "'Tain't often you come. "'What's brought you, eh?' "'I can read, can't I?' Rhoda Gray glanced furtively around her, then leaned toward the other. So what's delay? I've been scared stiff all day. Is that straight what the paper said about you's know who getting pinched? A scowl settled over Schlucker's features as he nodded. Yes, it's straight enough, he answered. Damn em, one and all. But they let him out again. That's de stuff, applauded Rhoda Gray earnestly. Where is he, den? Schlucker shook his head. He didn't say, said Schlucker. He didn't say? echoed Rhoda Gray a little tartly. "'What do yous mean? He didn't say. Have you seen him?' Schlucker jerked his head toward the telephone instrument on the desk. "'He was talking to me a little while ago.' "'Well, den,' Rhoda Gray risked a more peremptory tone. "'Where is he?' Schlucker shook his head again. "'I don't know,' he said. "'I'm telling you, he didn't say.' Rhoda Gray studied the wizened and repulsive old creature that, huddled in his chair in the dirty, boxed-in little office, made her think of some crafty old spider lurking in its web for unwary prey. Was the man lying to her? Was he in any degree suspicious? Why should he be? He had not given the slightest sign that her uncouth language was either unexpected or unnecessary. Perhaps to Schlucker, and perhaps to all the rest of the gang, except Dangler, Gypsy Nan was accepted at face value as Gypsy Nan, and, if that were so, the idea of playing up a natural wifely anxiety on Dangler's behalf could not be used unless Schlucker gave her a lead in that direction. But, all that apart, she was getting nowhere. She bit her lips in disappointment. 
She had counted a great deal on this Schlucker here, and Schlucker was not proving the font of information, far from it, that she had hoped he would. She tried again, even more peremptorily than before. "'Ah, open up!' she snapped. "'What's the use being a clam? You's heard me, didn't you? Where is he?' Schlucker leaned abruptly forward, and looked at her in a suddenly perturbed way. "'Is there anything wrong?' he asked in a tense, lowered voice. "'What makes you so anxious to know?' Rhoda Gray laughed shortly. "'Nothing,' she answered coolly. "'I told yous once, didn't I? I got a scare reading them papers. And I ain't over it yet. That's what I want to know for. And you seem afraid to open up.' Schlucker sank back again in his chair with an air of relief. "'Oh,' he ejaculated. "'Well, that's all right, then. You were beginning to give me a scare, too. I ain't playing the clam, and I don't know where he is.' but I can tell you there's nothing to worry you any more about the rest of it. He was after the White Mall last night, and it didn't come off. They pulled one on him instead, and fastened him to the fire escape, the way the papers said. Skeeny and the Cricket, who were in on the play with him, didn't have time to get him loose before the bulls got there. So Dangler told them to beat it, and he handed the cops the story that was in the papers. He got away with it all right, and they let him go today. But he phoned a little while ago that they were still sticking around kind of close to him, and that I was to pass on the word that the lid was to go down tight for the next few days, and— Schlucker stopped abruptly as the phone rang, and reached for the instrument. Rhoda Gray fumbled unnecessarily with her shawl as the other answered the call. Failure. A curious bitterness came to her. Her plan, then, for tonight at least, was a failure. Schlucker did not know where Dangler was. She was quite convinced of that. Schlucker was. She glanced suddenly at the wizened little old man. From an ordinary tone, Schlucker's voice had risen sharply in protest about something. She listened now. No, no. It doesn't matter what it is. What? No. I tell you no. Nothing. Not tonight. Those are orders. No, I don't know. Nan is here now. Eh? "'You'll pay for it if you do,' Schlucker was snarling threateningly now. "'What? Well, then wait. I'll come over. No, you can bet I won't be long. You wait. Understand?' He banged the receiver on the hook, and got up from his chair hurriedly. "'Fools!' he muttered savagely. "'No, I won't be long getting there,' he grabbed Rhoda Gray's arm. "'Yes, you come, too. You will help me put a little sense in their heads, if it is possible, eh?' the fools. The man was violently excited. He half pulled Rhoda Gray down the length of the shop to the front door. Puzzled, bewildered, a little uneasy, she watched him lock the door, and then followed him across the courtyard, while he continued to mutter constantly to himself. "'What's the matter?' she asked him twice. But it was not until they had reached the street, and Schlucker was hurrying along as fast as he could walk, that he answered her. "'It's the pug and Pinky Bon,' he jerked out angrily. "'They're in the pug's room. "'Pinky went back there after telephonin'. "'They've nosed out something they want to put through, the fools. "'And after last night nearly haven't finished everything. "'I told them, you heard me, that everybody's to keep under cover now. "'But they think they've got a soft thing, and they say they're going to do it. "'I've got to put a crimp in it, and you've got to help me. "'You understand, Nan?' "'Yes,' she said mechanically. Her mind was working swiftly. The night, after all, perhaps was not to be so much of a failure. To get into intimate touch with all members of the clique was equally one of her objects, and failing Dangler himself tonight, here was an open sesame to the retreat of two of the others. She would never have a better chance, or one in which risk and danger, under the chaperone, as it were, of Schlucker here, were, if not entirely eliminated, at least reduced to an apparently negligible minimum. Yes, she would go. To refuse was to turn her back on her own proposed line of action, and on the decision which she had made herself. CHAPTER Twelve. Crooks versus Crooks. It was not far. Schlucker, hastening along, still muttering to himself, turned into a cross street some two blocks away, and from there again into a lane, 
and a moment later led the way through a small door in the fence that hung battered and half open on sagging broken hinges rhoda gray's eyes travelled sharply around her in all directions it was still light enough to see fairly well and she might at some future time find the bearing she took now to be of inestimable worth not that there was much to remark they crossed a diminutive and disgustingly dirty backyard whose sole reason for existence seemed to be that of a receptacle of four old tin cans and were confronted by the rear of what appeared to be a four-story tenement there was a back door here and on the right of the door fronting the yard a single window that was some four or five feet from the level of the ground schlucker without hesitation opened the back door shut it behind them led the way along the black unlighted hall and halting before a door well toward the front of the building knocked softly upon it giving two raps a single rap and then two more in quick succession there was no answer he knocked again in precisely the same manner, and then footsteps sounded from within, and the door flung open. "'Fools!' growled Schlucker in greeting, as they stepped inside and the door was closed again. "'A pair of brainless fools!' There were two men there. They paid Schlucker scant attention. They both grinned at Rhoda Gray through the murky light supplied by a wheezy and wholly inadequate gas-jet. "'Hello, Nan,' jibed the smaller of the two. "'Who let you out?' "'Ah, forget it,' croaked Rhoda Gray. Schlucker took up the cudgels. "'Close your face, Pinky,' he snapped. "'Get down to cases. "'Do you think I got nothing to do "'but chase you two around like a couple of puppy dogs "'that haven't got sense enough to take care of themselves? "'Wasn't what I told you over the phone enough "'without me having to come here?' "'Nix on that stuff,' returned the one designated as Pinky imperturbably. "'Say,' You'll be glad you came, when we let you in on a little piece of easy money. We ain't asking your advice. All we're asking you to do is frame up the alibi, same as usual, for me and the pug here in case we wants it. Schlucker shook his fist. Frame nothing, he sputtered angrily. Ain't I telling you that orders are not to make a move, that everything is off for a few days? That's the word I got a little while ago, and the 739 is going out now. Nan'll tell you the same thing. Sure, corroborated Rhoda Gray, picking up the obvious cue. That's to straight goods. The two men were lounging beside a table that stood at the extreme end of the room, and now for a moment they whispered together. And as they whispered, Rhoda Gray found her first opportunity to take critical stock of both her surroundings and the two men themselves. Pinky, a short, slight little man, she dismissed with hardly a glance. He was the common type, with low, vicious cunning stamped all over his face an ordinary rat of the underworld. But her glance rested longer on his companion. The pug was indeed entitled to his moniker. His face made her think of one. It seemed to be all screwed up and out of shape. Perhaps the eye-patch over his right eye helped a little to put the finishing touch of repulsiveness upon a countenance already most unpleasant. The celluloid eye-patch, once flesh-colored, was now so dirty and smeared that its original color was discernible only in spots. The once white elastic cord that circled his head and kept the patch in place was an equal disrepute. A battered slouch hat came to the level of the eye-patch in a forbidding sort of tilt. His left eyelid drooped until it was scarcely open at all and fluttered continually. One nostril of his nose was entirely closed, and his mouth seemed to be twisted out of shape, so even in repose the lips never entirely met at one corner. And his ears, what she could see of them in the poor light, and on account of the slouched hat, seemed to bear out the low-type criminal impression the man gave her, and that they lay flat back against his head. She turned her eyes away with a little shudder of repulsion, and gave her attention to an inspection of the room. There was no window except a small one high up on the right-hand partition wall. She quite understood what that meant. It was common enough, and all too unsanitary enough, in these old and cheap tenements. The window gave not on the out-of-doors, but on a light well. For the rest, it was a room she had seen a thousand times before, carpetless, unfurnished save for the barest necessities, dirt everywhere, unkempt. Pinky Bond broke in abruptly upon her inspection. "'That's all right,' he announced airily. "'We'll let Nan in on it, too. "'The pug and me figures she can give us a hand.' Skulker's wizened little face seemed suddenly to go purple. 
"'Are you trying to make a fool of me?' he half-screamed. "'Or can't you understand English?' Do you want me to keep on telling you till I'm hoarse that there ain't nobody going in with you because you ain't going in yourself? See? Understand that? There's nothing doing tonight for anybody, and that means you. Ah, oh, shut up, skulker. It was the pug now, a curious whispering sibilancy in his voice, due no doubt to the disfigurement of his lips. Give Pinky a chance to shoot a spiel before you injure yourself throwing a fit. Go on, Pinky, spill it. Sure said Pinky eagerly. Listen, Schluck, it ain't any crib we're wantin' to crack, or nothing like that. It's just a couple of crooks that won't dare open up their yaps to the bulls, cause what we're after'll be what they'll have pinched themselves, see? Schlucker's face lost some of its belligerency, and in its place a dawning interest came. What's that? he demanded cautiously. What crooks? French Pete and Marnie Day, said Pinky, and grinned. Oh, Schlucker's eyebrows went up. He looked at the pug, and the pug winked knowingly with his half-closed left eyelid. Schlucker reached for a chair, and finding it suspiciously wobbly, straddled it warily. "'Maybe I've been wrong,' he admitted. "'What's the lay?' "'Me,' said Pinky. "'I was down at Charlie's this afternoon, having a little lay-off, and—' "'One of these days,' interrupted Schlucker, sharply. "'You'll go out like—' he snapped his fingers. "'That. Can't you leave that stuff alone?' "'I got to have me a bit of coke,' Pinky answered with a shrug of his shoulders. "'And anyway, I ain't no pipe-hitter.' "'It's all the same whatever way you take it,' retorted Schlucker. "'Well, go on with your story. "'You went down to Charlie's dope parlors and jabbed a needle into yourself, "'or took it some other old way. "'I get you. What happened then?' "'It was about an hour ago,' resumed Pinky Bond with undisturbed complacency. Just as I was beating it out of there by the cellar, I hears some whispering as I was passing one of the inn doors. Savvy? I hadn't made no noise, and they hadn't heard me. I gets a peek in, cause the door's cracked. It was French Pete and Marnie Day. I listens, and after about two seconds I was going shaky for fear someone would come along, and I wouldn't get the whole of it. Take it from me, Schluck, it was some goods. Schlucker grunted noncommittally. Well, go on, he prompted. I didn't get all the fine points, grinned Pinky, but I got enough. There was a guy by the name of Daney, who used to live somewhere on the east side here, and used to work in some sweatshop, and he worked till he got pretty old, and then his lungs or something went bad on him, and he went broke. And the doctor said he had to beat it out of here to a more salubrious climate. Some nut filled his ear about gold hunting up in Alaska, and he fell for it. He chewed it over with his wife, and she was for it, too, cause the doctor had told her her old man would bump off if he stuck around here, and they hadn't any money to get away together. She figured she could get along working out by day till he came back a millionaire, and old Danny started off. I don't know how he got there. I'm just fillin' in what I hears French Pete and Marnie talkin' about. I guess mostly he beat his way there ridin' the rods. Anyway, he got there. See? and then he goes down sick there again, and a hospital or some outfit has to take care of him for a couple of years, and back here the old woman's got kind of feeble, and on her uppers, and there was hell to pay, and— "'What's biting your nose, Nan?' the pug's lisping whisper broke sharply in upon Pinky Bond's story. Rhoda Gray started. She was conscious now that she had been leaning forward, staring in a startled way at Pinky as he talked, conscious now that for a moment she had forgotten that she was Gypsy Nan." but she was mistress of herself on the instant, and she scowled blackly at the pug. "'Maybe it's me soft heart that's touched,' she flung out acidly. "'Use close your trap and let Pinky talk.' "'Yes, shut up,' said Pinky. "'What was I saying? Oh, yes. And the old guy makes a strike. Can you beat it? I don't know nothing about the way they pull them things, but he's off by his lonesome out somewhere, and he finds gold, and he stakes out his claim.' but he takes sick again and he can't work it and it's all he can do to get back alive to civilization he keeps his mouth shut for a while figuring he'll get strong again but it ain't no good and he gets a letter from the old woman telling how bad she is and then he shows some of the stuff he found after that there's nothing to it everybody's beaten it for the place but at that old Danny comes out all right and goes crazy with joy cause some guy offers him twenty-five thousand bucks for his claim and throws in the expenses home for good luck he gets the money in cash, twenty-five one-thousand-dollar bills, and the chicken feed for expenses, and starts back here to the old woman. 
but this time he don't keep his mouth shut about it when he'd have been better off if he had. See? He was telling about it on the train. I guess he was telling about it all the ways across. But anyway, he tells about it come from Philly this afternoon, and French Pete and Marnie Day happens to be on the train, and they hears it, and frames up to annex the coin before morning, cause he's got in too late to get the money into any bank today. Pinky Bond paused, and stuck his finger significantly in his cheek. Skulker was rubbing his hands together now in a sort of unctuous way. It sounds pretty good, he murmured. Only there's Dangler. You sleeve Dangler to me, broke in the pug. As soon as we hands one of dem two boobs and gets to cash, Pinky can beat it back here with de coin, and wait for me while I finds Dangler and squares it with him. He ain't going to put up a holler at dat. We ain't running de gang into nothing. Dis here is private business, see? So you's just take a sneak with yourself and fix a nice alibi for us so's we won't be taking any chances. Schlucker frowned. But what's the good of that, he demurred. French Pete and Marnie Dale see you anyway. Will they? scoffed the pug. Guess once more. A couple of handkerchiefs over our mugs is good enough for dem, if yous holds your end up. And they wouldn't talk for publication anyway, would they? Schlucker smiled now almost ingratiatingly. And how much is my end worth? he inquired softly. One of dem thousand-dollar engravings, stated Pug promptly. And Pinky'll run around and slip it to yous before morning. All right, said Schlucker after a moment. It's half past eight now. From nine o'clock on, you can beat any jury in New York to it that you were both at the same old place, as long as you keep decently under cover. That'll do it, won't it? I'll fix it. But I don't see. Rhoda Gray, as Gypsy Nan for the first time, projected herself into the discussion. She cackled suddenly in jeering mirth. I thought something was wrong with her, whispered the pug with mock anxiety. Maybe she ain't well. Tell us about it, Nan. When I do, she said complacently, maybe you'll smile out of the utter corner of that mouth of yours. She turned to Schlucker. Yous needn't lay awake waitin' for that thousand, Schlucker, cause you'll never see it. The little game's all off, cause it's already been pulled, see? There was a near riot as I passed along the street going to your place, and I gets piped off at what's up, and it's the same story that Pinky told, and the crib's cracked, and the money's gone, that's all. Schlucker's face fell. I said you were fools when I first came here, he burst out suddenly, wheeling on Pinky Bon and the pug. I'm sure of it now. I was wondering a minute ago how you were going to keep your lamps on Pete and Marnie from here, or know when they were going to pull their stunt, or where to find them. Pinky Bon, ignoring Schlucker, leaned toward Rhoda Gray. Say, Nan, is that straight? he inquired anxiously. You sure? Sure, I'm sure, Rhoda Gray asserted tersely. The one thought in her head now was that her information would naturally deprive these men here of any further interest in the matter, and that she would get away as quickly as possible, and in some way or another see that the police were tipped off to the fact that it was French Pete and Marnie Day that had taken the old couple's money. Those two old faces rose before her again, blotting out most curiously the face of Pinky Bond just in front of her. She felt strangely glad, glad that she had heard all of old Daney's story, because she could see now an ending to it other than the miserable, hopeless one of despair that she had read in the Daney's faces just a little while ago. "'Sure, I'm sure,' she repeated with finality. "'How long ago was it?' prodded Pinky. "'I don't know,' she answered. I just went to Schlucker's, and den we comes over here. Yous can figure it out for yourself. And then Rhoda Gray stared at the other, with sudden misgiving. Pinky Bond's face was suddenly wreathed in smiles. I'll answer you now, Schluck, he grinned. What do you think? That we're nuts, me and Pug? Well, forget it. We didn't have to stick around watching Pete and Marnie. We just had to wait until they had collected the dough. That was the most trouble we had, wondering when that would be. Well, we don't have to wonder any more. We know that the cherries are ripe, see? And now we'll go and pick em. Where? Where do you suppose? Down at Charlie's, of course. I hears em talking about that, too. They ain't so foolish. They're out for an alibi themselves. Get the idea? They was to sneak out of Charlie's without anybody seeing em, and if everything broke right for em, they was to sneak back again and spend the night there. They ain't so foolish. I guess they ain't. 
there ain't no place in new york you can get in and out of without nobody knowing it like charlie's if you know the way and ah write it down in your memoirs interposed the pug impatiently and moved to the door it's all right schlucker all the way now everybody beat it and get on the job nan you sticks with pinky and me rhoda gray her mind in confusion found herself being crowded hurriedly through the doorway by the three men still in a mentally confused condition she found herself a few minutes later schlucker having parted company with them walking along the street between pinky bond and the pug she was fighting desperately to obtain a rip upon herself the information she had volunteered had had an effect diametrically opposed to that which she had intended she seemed terribly impotent as though she were being swept from her feet and borne onward by some swift and remorseless current whether she would or no the pug in his curious whisper was talking to her pinky nosed away in we don't want any row in there on account of charlie we ain't for putting his place on de rough and getting him raided by de bulls charlie's all to de good see well that's what'd likely happen if me and pinky busts in on pete and marnie without sendin in our visitin cards first polite like they would pull their guns and though we'd get the coin just the same there'd be hell to pay for charlie and de whole place would go up in fireworks right off the bat well this is where youse come in youse are de visitin card youse gets in der bunk room pretendin youse have made a mistake and youse leave de door open behind youse they don't know youse and bein a woman they won't pull no gun on youse and then youse breaks it gently to em that there's a couple of gents outside and just about then they looks up and sees me and pinky and our guns and i guess dat's all get it sure rhoda gray mumbled the pug talked on she did not hear him it seemed as though her brain ached literally with an acute physical pain what was she to do what could she do she must do something there must be some way for her to save herself from being drawn into the very center of this vortex toward which she was being swept closer with every second that passed the two old faces haggard in their despair and misery rose before her again she felt her heart sink she had counted only a few minutes before on getting their money back for them through the police the police how could she get any word to the police now without first getting away from these two men and suppose she did get away and found some means of communicating with the authorities it would be pinky bond here and the pug who would fall into the meshes of the law quite as much as french pete and marnie day and to have pinky and the pug apprehended now just as they seemed to be opening up the gateway for her to the inner secrets of the gang meant ruin to her own hopes and plans and to refuse to go with them now as one of them would certainly excite their suspicions and suspicion of gypsy nan was the end of everything for her her hands under her shawl clenched until her nails bit into her palms she couldn't do anything and there was the money too for those two old people wasn't there any she caught her breath yes yes perhaps there was a way to save the money yes and at the same time to place herself on a firmer footing of intimacy with these two men here if she went on with this but she shook her head she could afford no buts now they must take care of themselves afterwards she would play gypsy nan now without reservation these two men here like schlucker were obviously ignorant that gypsy nan was dangler's wife so she was pinky bond's hand was on her arm she had stumbled look out for yourself he cautioned under his breath don't make a sound they had drawn into a very dark and narrow way between two buildings and now pinky kept his touch upon her as he led the way along what was this charlie's she did not know except that from what had been said it was a drug dive of some kind patronized extensively by the denizens of the underworld she did not know where she was now save that she had suddenly left one of the out-of-the-way east side streets Pinky halted suddenly, and bending down, lifted up what was evidently a half-section of the folding trap-door to a cellar entrance. "'There's only a few of us regulars wise to this,' whispered Pinky. "'Watch yourself. There's five steps. Count them so's you won't trip. Keep hold of me all the way, and nix on the noise, or we won't get away with it inside. Leave the trap open, Pug, for our getaway. We ain't going to be long. Come on.' It was horribly dark. 
Rhoda Gray, with her hand on Pinkie Bond's shoulder, descended the five steps. She felt the pug keeping touch behind by holding the corner of her shawl. They went forward softly, slowly, stealthily. She felt her knees shake a little, and suddenly panic seized her, and she wanted to scream out. What was she doing? Where was she going? Was she mad that she had ventured into this trap of blackness? Blackness! It was hideously black. She looked behind her. She could not see the pug, close as he was to her. And dark as she had thought it outside, there at the cellar entrance, it appeared by contrast to have been light, for she could even distinguish now the opening through which they had come. They were in a cellar that was damp underfoot, and the soft earth deadened the sound as they walked upon it, and they seemed to be walking interminably. It was too far, much too far. She felt her nerve failing her. She looked behind her again. That opening, still discernible to her straining eyes, beckoned her, lured her. Better to— Pinky halted again. She bumped into him, and then she felt his lips press against her ear. "'Here they are,' he breathed. They got the end room on the right, so's they could get in and out without being seen, and so's even Charlie'd swear they was here all the time. "'You're too old a bird to fall down, Nan. If the door's locked, knock, and give em any old kind of song and dance till you gets em off their guard. The pug and me'll see you through. Go it.' Before Rhoda Gray could reply, Pinky had stepped suddenly to one side. A door in front of her, a sliding door it seemed to be, opened noiselessly, and she could see a faintly lighted, narrow, and very short passage ahead of her. It appeared to make a right-angle turn just a few yards in, and what light there was seemed to filter in from around the corner. And on each side of the passage, before it made the turn, there was a door, and from the one on the right, through a cracked panel, a tiny thread of light seeped out. Her lips moved silently. After all, it was not so perilous. Nobody would be hurt. Pinky and the pug would cover those two men in there, and take the money, and run for it, and— The pug gave her an encouraging push from behind. She moved forward mechanically. There were many sounds now, but they came muffled and indeterminate from around the corner ahead, all save a low murmuring of voices from the door with the cracked panel on the right. It was only a few feet away. She found herself crouched before the door— but she did not knock upon it. Instead, her blood seemed suddenly to run cold in her veins, and she beckoned frantically to her two companions. She could see through the crack in the panel. There were two men in there, French Pete and Marny Day, undoubtedly, and they sat on opposite sides of a table, and a lamp burned on the table, and one of the men was counting out a sheaf of crisp, yellow-back banknotes. But the other, while apparently engrossed in the first man's occupation, and while he leaned forward in apparent eagerness, was edging one hand stealthily toward the lamp, and his other hand, hidden from his companion's view by the table, was just drawing a revolver from his pocket. There was no mistaking the man's murderous intentions. A dull horror that numbed her brain seized upon Rhoda Gray. The low-type, brutal faces under the rays of the lamp seemed to assume the aspect of two monstrous gargoyles, and to spin around and around before her vision. And then, it could only have been but a fraction of a second since she had begun to beckon to Pinky, and the pug, she felt herself pulled unceremoniously away from the door, and the pug leaned forward in her place, his eye to the crack in the panel. She heard a low, quick-muttered exclamation from the pug, and then suddenly, as the lamp was obviously extinguished, the crack of light in the panel had vanished. But in an instant, curiously like a jagged lightning flash, light showed through the crack again, and vanished again. It was the flash of a revolver shot from within, and the roar of the report came like a roll of thunder on its heels. Rhoda Gray was back against the opposite wall. She saw the pug fling himself against the door. It was a flimsy affair. It crashed inward. "'Shoot your flash on the table and grab the coin. I'll fix the other guy.' Were eternities passing? Her eyes were fascinated by the interior beyond the broken wall. It was utterly dark inside there, save the ray of a flashlight played now on the table, and a hand reached out and snatched up the scattered sheaf of banknotes, and on the outer edge of the ray two shadowed forms struggled, and one went down, then the flashlight went out. She heard Pug speak. Beat it! Commotion came now, cries and footsteps from around the corner in the passage. 
the pug grasped her by the shoulders and rushed her back into the cellar. She was conscious, it seemed, only in a dazed and mechanical way. There were men in the passage running toward them, and then the passage had disappeared. Pinky Bon had shut the connecting door. "'Hop it like blazes,' whispered the pug, as they ran for the faint glimmer of light that located the cellar exit. "'Separate the minute we're outside,' he ordered. "'There's murder in dare. Pete shot Marnie. I put Pete to sleep with a punch on the jaw, but the bunch knows there was someone else dare, and Pete'll swear it was us, though he don't know who we was that did the shootin'. I gotta make this straight right off the bat with Dangler.' His whispering voice was labored, panting. They were climbing up the steps now. "'Yous take the money to my room, Pinky, and wait for me. I won't be much more'n half an hour. Nan, yous beat it for your garret and stay there.' They were outside. The pug had disappeared in the darkness. Pinky was closing and evidently fastening the trap-door. "'The other way, Nan,' he flung out as she started to run. That takes you to the other street, and they can't get around that way without going around the whole block. Me for a fence I knows about, and we gives em a merry laugh. Go on. She ran, ran breathlessly, stumbling, half falling, her hands stretched out before her to serve almost in lieu of her eyes, for she could make out scarcely anything in front of her. She emerged upon a street. It seemed abnormal. The quiet, the lack of commotion, the laughter— the unconcerned voices of the passers-by among whom she suddenly found herself. She hurried from the neighborhood. Whoa, the White Mole is in the middle of it. You know, we've seen her around the edges, but we've never seen her with the gang on a caper. I think caper's a little too high class to use for them, but, you know, it's all I could think of. Pretty neat, right? You know, one of the things I liked about the White Mall this time around is she was thinking about her feelings for the adventurer. And, you know, kind of blushing and thinking the way young ladies in love do. But she was also horrified because he's a thief. And I was thinking about, kind of along the lines of Ken's commentary at the beginning of the episode, I was thinking about the fact that that's very different from the way we would think today. We would be thinking, oh, he's a bad boy. That's all right, because he seems like a good guy underneath. Well, the way Frank L. Packard writes it, there is none of this forgiveness for somebody who's a thief. That is a moral weakness. And so no wonder the White Mall is struggling the way she does with what other people are thinking of her. This is something more that she's sacrificing than just her time and her living place and the fear that she lives with. I say just, which is plenty, right? But she's also sacrificing her reputation, it's not Rhoda Gray's reputation, her real name, but she's sacrificing something that the White Mall has built up and has a reason to be proud of. She was trustworthy. So I found that to be an interesting point, something very different. And I'm not sure it's a bad thing. I think actually it might be a very good thing. So a little nugget of something to consider. I can't wait to see how this is going to turn out. And I promise you will not have to wait as long as you did for this episode. I have had a lot of stuff going on work-wise, and it just got really crazy for a little while. So even though I wasn't reading anything in the background, it was still crazy. So you could only imagine how much longer it would have been if we weren't listening to Rowdy Delaney's reading. I do not have much other news. Scott and I at A Good Story It's Hard to Find talked about Ben-Hur. Oh, that classic. So good. You know, part of the problem with these big classics like this, movies especially, that you've seen a lot on TV, is you don't know what's been cut out. You also don't know what you've forgotten. You think you remember everything, and then you watch, and whether it's just because you're older or just because you forgot you're suddenly seeing it in a new perspective. So that was really fun to talk about. And it is late August. In fact, it's the last day of August 
Here I am in Texas. It's about 95, 96, 97 degrees and our air conditioning is out. So this is going to be a short exit. <laughs> I have not got a lot of patience for sitting in front of a computer right now. I want to get back to our one room of the house where, thank goodness, the air conditioning does not usually go very well. So we actually have a little window unit that we'll use to cool that room off. And thank goodness for it because that room's got the air conditioner blasting and we have a fan set up to kind of blow it in the rest of the house. Though it doesn't get to this part of the house that I'm in right now. At any rate, I thank you for your patience. I thank you for coming by. Have a great week, everyone. And I'll talk to you again soon. Bye.